Welcome to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. I'm Kevin Weber, and I am your host. Um, I've got a couple interesting segments for you. There's been a, a, a proposal, potential proposal, by some prominent um, NCAA baseball coaches to um, make some significant uh, changes to the college baseball schedule, and I'll talk about that. We're going to talk about... Um, uh, high school game fees, particularly umpire fees, of course, because this is an umpire podcast. But I am going to mention some other sports as well, because I know some of you do other sports. And um, it's kind of interesting to see where baseball falls compared to them. I've got an umpire spotlight, uh, Ernie Quigley. I'll take a look at Ernie's life and career. I know some states around the country are starting to loosen up some of their restrictions and and some people have been able to umpire you guys are lucky if if that's one of uh of you out there we have not been able to do that here in the state of michigan um our stay-at-home order was extended until june 12th just the other day and so um, we were hoping to maybe start doing some some umpiring here uh the first week of june but uh looks like it might not be until like june 15th now uh i've gotten some messages and emails from some listeners like uh, Michael Baird um, messaged me and said that um, since Wisconsin's state Supreme Court's uh, decision it's been decided by default I guess to go um, locality by locality for their safe at home stuff. Uh, Most leagues there are going to start up after Memorial Day by the latest uh, June 1st. So that'd be good for them. That's better than it is here in Michigan. And he says that he's been making masks, you know, like black and navy um, to, you know, go with his uniforms and stuff. Some leagues are talking about having um, balls and strikes called from behind the pitcher. Um, but he says we'll see what the final guidance is. Um, doesn't necessarily like that, but, uh, you know, wants to get back on the field. I certainly hear you, Michael. I would like that as well. Um, we just recently here had our, you know, the Great Lakes Summer Collegiate League that I work games in. Uh, they just canceled their season. They made that decision. There's like 12 teams in that league, and only six were going to participate, and didn't really know how they were going to do that and how they were going to. They can't. They couldn't really guarantee the safety of the players and traveling around and such. So it was probably the best decision for them to um, scrap it for this year. Though that is certainly very, um, very disappointing. So, you know, I had some games there. Then I was trying to assign some games myself uh, to the, uh, you know, summer travel league that I assigned games for. And I uh, even gave myself a couple games. And still, now, every game that I've had on Arbiter, and I had quite a few, <laughs> has been canceled. Every single game. Uh, a lot of red on there. That thing is just bleeding. I got another um, email as well from Robert Fobian, and um, I appreciate his email. And he says that you know he likes the show and everything, listens to it, and he's just uh, um, kind of working his way up uh, some levels in um, baseball. He had worked uh, little league for uh, several years, and um, then you know his kids were growing up and he was doing stuff with them and coaching and, and that kind of stuff and he was starting to work some high school games uh this year as well you know some jv scrimmages and stuff uh, he mentions that um as far as the state of virginia the latest word in virginia is that the youth travel season might begin as early as late june early july that sounds similar to michigan actually maybe slightly after that um, we're looking at the middle um w- one of um, the biggest bureaucratic hurdles is that the uh, the governor uh, has closed, you know, lots of fields that are adjacent to schools. And, you know, if you can't go into the school, then you can't use the field. So they're having some, some trouble with that as well. Um, and then his association has been informed by the NFHS that um, – People aren't going to be, you know, they're not going to be issuing rule books for 2021, which I understand why. That's a, a waste of printing uh, resources. If we're going to do exactly the same thing, people should just hold on to the rule books, 
We had some of our rule changes that we've talked about in earlier podcasts. If you aren't familiar with those, go back and check them out. And uh, those things are going to, I assume, be in place uh, next year. Um, like the new, you know, types of lineups we can have with the uh, player DH and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's going to still be there and we're still going to be, you know, expected to follow those things. Just like in uh, college baseball with the uh, the new uh, pitch, well, it's not really a new pitch timer, but the more rigorous enforcement of the, uh, the, the timer, uh, we're going to be expected to do that next year as well. Anyway. That's the latest happenings that I've got here from the west side of Michigan. Hopefully things are looking on the up and up for you guys. Um, Whatever the case may be, just sit back and take a listen for a little while about some umpiring here on The Hammer, an umpire podcast. So a group of NCAA baseball coaches, some prominent ones like uh, Michigan's Eric Bakish, have come up with a detailed proposal to change college baseball's calendar uh, to make that you know more financially stable. Uh, we see the lack of financial stability with baseball um, and other sports here. Um, well, it's prominent here in this pandemic time. Um, and some programs have been cut, right? So at the heart of this plan is a proposal to push the season back about a month, moving like the opening day of college season from um, like mid-February, where it is now, to the third weekend of March, and then start the NCAA tournament, um, you know, at kind of near the end of June. So plans like this have... Uh, been made over the years, um, different proposals, uh, different scopes of them, um, you know, making a case for financial, academic, and student welfare and support, but they haven't gotten much, you know, traction. Um, this one seems to be getting a little bit of traction. There's, you know, some people that are interested in it, and the NCAA seems to be uh, considering some of the uh, ideas that are being being put forth. So, you know, it's a reaction to, you know, the whole coronavirus pandemic and then programs like Bowling Green and Furman and also Chicago State maybe uh, losing their baseball programs. Um, and then, you know, you got a lot of big-time D1 coaches around the country that think this might be a good idea. Um, it's particularly the coaches in the warmer climates, the southeast, the southwest, the west coast, they don't have to really worry about, you know, the season starting later because, you know, they can play games in February in their areas. So uh, the big adjustments, if this were to go forth, would be pushing the season back four weeks, uh, an expanded preseason, shortened fall ball, and moving fall scrimmages uh, to the preseason. So, you know, it'd be crazy. The opening day would be in March instead of mid-February. Um, selection Monday would be in late June. The College World Series would be in July. And um, this would be a completely new reality for everybody involved. Um, so, like I say, um, the, the later start date to the season has been debated in college baseball, you know, because we know if you're starting in February, you're really starting in the tail end of winter. Okay, let's not kid ourselves here. And if you are in the Midwest or the Northeast or any northern climate, anything, you know, uh, in the northern part of the country, you know that when you start doing some of your games, particularly if they are in February, don't, we don't really get too many here in Michigan in February, but every once in a while you do. But the ones in March, it's like you're on prime baseball in the wintertime. You know, frequently games are it's in the 30 degrees and there's, you know, good wind chill factor out there. You got to really bundle up. It's cold. I mean, you can see your breath. I don't know how some of these guys play sometimes. Um, I've, I have I had a game, a college game canceled a couple of years ago for snow. We played the first game. I came out to do the second game on the plate, and uh, it started snowing, and there's so much snow on the ground. 
uh, it was hard to see the ball. And then if the ball was hit in the air because the snowflakes were coming down, uh, you couldn't tell. It was dangerous. So we called it. All right. So um, anyway, it's definitely a um, interesting concept. Uh, I know some of you might think it's a good idea. Some of you might not. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. Feel free to email me or send me a voicemail uh, through the Anchor app uh, or any other way. You know, you can reach me on Facebook and stuff and let me know what you think about this proposal and the good and bad things about it. As someone that uh, works games here in the northern part of the country, um, you know, I know that these these teams up here are forced to play all these row games the first several weeks of the season. It's high travel costs, a lot of missed class time for these student athletes. And um, even the schools that can play some home games in the season, the weather is not very good, as I mentioned. And, you know, who wants to sit out there for three hours, you know, when it's, you know, 37 degrees? Pretty much just the parents want to do that. And you're not going to be able to draw, you know, just kind of casual fans out there for games like that. Um, So a lot of times they play more games um, early in the season or, you know, in in the daytime, which makes it harder for them to uh, draw people, you know, after they get out of work. Um, According to, you know, the proposal that they've put forth, uh, the Big Ten, or competitive northern teams as they call them, spend an average of almost $234,000 over the last five years on travel in the first four weeks of the season. Um, and at the same time, the last four weeks of the regular season, when teams are in conference play and playing a more regional schedule, you know, playing their, you know, they're going down to Ohio or Indiana or Illinois or something, the costs were like about 89000 So that's... Um, a ridiculous, uh, uh, more, ridiculously more amount of money to be spending. But schools in better weather in the South and, and in the West, they saw their attendance increase in April and May versus, you know, February and March. And uh, with that comparison, um, though it's not perfect, fans, you know, maybe are more interested in conference games or maybe they're less interested in the some of the non-competitive or, or competitive non-conference series. But college baseball tennis players are almost always taken off to, you know, paid attendance, which isn't a true reflection of how fans, you know, are with the with the uh, games there. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to, to figure. It's not as easy as a professional sport. Anyway, for, um, for every school, a February start date also places the first half of the season in a you know, a crowded sports calendar. If you're a big sports fan like me, you know, college basketball is getting close to its March Madness time. So people maybe rather check that out than go to a baseball game, especially if it's cold. Um, Also, you know, it overlaps with all those conference tournaments and stuff as they work into that. Um, And then, you know, you you have the the end of some of the professional sports at that time too, you know, with uh, basketball and hockey and everything else. So that's a tough time to do that. Um, and if you were able to push it a little bit later, uh, then you might have a little more interest in, you know, there's always a, a crowded sports calendar unless we have a pandemic, right? Um, but it's something to definitely consider. It's not without complications. Um, you know, the season already lasts well past the end of the spring semester because most kids are out of school and, you know, before the baseball season is done as it is. And keeping players on campus while school's out of session, it, that's, you know, expensive as well. Um, so the plan might be to keep players on campus uh, four extra weeks. Uh, Northern schools would also get more home games in this arrangement. And uh, add expen- you know, they would add more expenses because of that, like paying us umpires and, and other people that work for them uh, during that time. And then, of course, any proposal that comes up, you got to consider the uh, Major League Draft because, um, you know, if you push the season back, uh, the Major League Baseball already is talking about moving the draft from June to July uh, in accordance with its plan to scale back um, Minor League Baseball, which is another unfortunate thing that's happening. Um, but, you know, that's not as big a problem for uh college baseball as it would be for minor league baseball, I guess, if it was a June to July draft. So 
it also comes, this kind of proposal comes with some academic merit. Um, less travel time means more players are in class and uh, reduced fall ball will give players more time to focus on their studies. And um, an extended preseason would lighten the load at the start of the spring semester for them. And, you know, I think, I think players in general would like that. Um, another thing to consider um, is it, it affects, you know, the summer collegiate leagues. And, uh, you know, like, like some of the big ones, let's say like the Cape Cod League and stuff. So they might have to adjust their schedules. There might not be certain players available to them, particularly if they are on schools that are going deeper into the NCAA tournament. But then again, if players are on you know, teams that are very good that usually make the NCAA tournament, they probably have a lot of their summer ball cut anyway because they're participating in those games. So I don't know how much that really changes, but it's something to definitely uh, consider. Um, anyway, this you know, the whole pandemic situation has changed everything in college athletics, um, and it's going to in the future for schools and with sports that have uh, – there are non-revenue kind of sports, which for most schools, that is baseball. I know that in certain parts of the country and in certain conferences, let's say the Southeast Conference or maybe the Pac-12 and, and the um, Big 12, they make some money. Um, they, it's almost like minor league baseball for them down there. They, they have good crowds, but they don't make that. They lose money up here in the north. Most schools do on baseball. Um, so they have to get it to a, a point where um, it can be feasible um, in in this you know new age that we're going to be entering. So hopefully it works out well for, for most people, but uh, there are going to be some casualties uh, from everything that's shaken down. Personally, I, I kind of like the idea. I, I think there's a lot of merit to it, particularly for people, people like me that work in the, in the northern part of the country. Um, but my gut feeling tells me that it's probably not going to happen. Uh, or if it does, it's going to be something that's not quite exactly like that. Um, I think there will be some changes, but I don't know if they'll have something that drastic. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes and, and how many people get on board for it. Again, love to hear what you guys think about it. Um, get a hold of me and let me know. This month's Referee Magazine had a very interesting article on high school game fees for all sports in the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii even. And they broke, broke it up into eight regions, which I'll get to in a moment. And they broke it down by um, six different sports, the six major sports that you know most states play. That would be baseball, basketball, football, soccer, softball, and volleyball. Lacrosse isn't there, or hockey, which I know are big in certain areas, and, and other sports are as well, I, I understand. But um, those are the ones they looked at nonetheless. <clears throat> so the average baseball game fee, high school baseball game fee, in the United States is $71. So you know what it is in your area, and you can kind of you know gauge where you are as far as the national average. I'll list the other sports here uh, because I know some of you work multiple sports, so you might find it interesting as well. So basketball's average is $73, football is $85, soccer is $68, uh, softball is $67, and volleyball is $64. So region one encompasses Maine, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont, so that north uh, northeast part of the country. Um, the low pay average is Maine at $67.50 for regular season games. And the high is New York for, well, they have 180-92. Um, maybe that's a doubleheader and then single game fee there. Um, Massachusetts, $84. New Jersey, 86 New Hampshire, 88 Rhode Island, 79 Connecticut, 94 27, very random or very specific there too. Uh, Vermont, uh, 
Um, and then they pay more for the state tournament, but I'm not getting into that. Um, so that's what they got for uh, baseball in Region 1, with New York leading the way um, across the region with the highest fees uh, in general, with football being at $183 a game there. That's pretty pretty good. Volleyball and softball are the two lowest paid sports in Region 1. Region 2 includes Delaware, Washington, D.C., Kentucky, Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia. And uh, in this region, the highest paid is the state of Virginia at uh, 95 a game. And the lowest is um, Kentucky, 41 to 46. Um, that's ridiculous. So Delaware has $76. I guess they uh, didn't get anything for this Washington, D.C. for regular season, but they do pay $95 for their state tournament, even though it's not a state. Um, Maryland, $80. Ohio, uh, $65. Uh, um, Pennsylvania, $87. West Virginia, $75. And then I mentioned Virginia at $95. So in this region, too, uh, Ohio's tournament fees are among the highest in the country, uh, which is like 110 to 145 for baseball tournament uh, and considerably higher than you know the regular season fees like Ohio $65 for regular season you know 110 to 145 for the tournament and Maryland and Virginia have uh, set tournament fees across the board um, here $100 for tournament fees you know in Maryland um, and Virginia $90 so that's region two Region 3 has the states of Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. So obviously the southeast part of the country. Um, here we get Alabama, $80 a game, Florida, 97 Georgia, 70 Louisiana, 75 Mississippi, 80 uh, North Carolina, 71 South Carolina, 60 and Tennessee, 80 And they all jump up... Um, in general, for their state tournament games. Florida is one of the states that sets a maximum for regular season game fees. Um, so $97, that's pretty good. Uh, schools may pay less um, if agreed upon, I guess. And then Tennessee's regular season and state tournament fees uh, are the same. $80 for a regular season, $80 for a tournament, which, you know, I think that's a pretty fair deal. So pretty good in that region, Uh Pretty well paid, other than South Carolina at $60 a game. Region 4 is my region because it includes Michigan, but also Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And Iowa's average is about 80 a game, Illinois 70, Indiana 85, Michigan at 70 slash 50, and uh, Wisconsin at 90. And in general, for this region, uh, Illinois' tournament fees are at least double what its regular season fees amount to, sometimes almost triple. For example, um, their regular season fee is $70, and they pay $140 for the state tournament, and that's that's a crazy jump there. They say that uh, Michigan's tournament fees are equal across the board. That's not necessarily true. I mean, you get paid more for uh, semifinal finals games than you do for uh, regional games, and you get paid less for district level games as well so i don't know where they're getting that information but that's region four region five includes kansas minnesota missouri nebraska north dakota and south dakota and uh their fees go like this kansas 65 uh minnesota 73 missouri 80 nebraska 75 north dakota 71 50 and then south dakota they didn't get any data some non-sanctioned sports or something that are there for the for baseball i guess um and uh basically north dakota state association similar to florida sets a maximum fee for regular season competition across the state so you get like 71.50 and then that's the highest you can get i guess you could get lower and then their state tournament's 67.85 and the south dakota does not sanction baseball or softball so they didn't get anything for that so that's region five Region 6 is Arkansas, Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. And um, there's some low fees here. Arkansas, $45 for minimum 
and it says you can get 90 I guess. Maybe that's a doubleheader. Colorado, $60. New Mexico, 60 Oklahoma, 60 um, And Texas, 75 And um, in Texas, though, uh, for Region 6, football officials get paid more for games that have large gate receipts. Uh, the Georgia State Finals had almost um, uh, 50,000 fans, you know, if you think of that, you know. So if they get a big crowd down there, that's good for them. So Arkansas um, also sets minimums, but average fees are well above those. So um, Arkansas's minimum is $45, but, you know, like their state tournament pays 75 So I'm sure it's maybe a little less than that for their average. They probably get somewhere maybe 60 something dollars, I bet. So that's Region 6. Region 7 is a West Coast region. we got Arizona, California, Hawaii, Nevada, and Utah. And uh, some of them play, pay well and some of them not so well. Um, Arizona, 94-27 a game average. California, $95. Hawaii, $50. That's pretty low. Uh, but you're in Hawaii, I guess, right? Um, Nevada, 69-25. And Utah, 66 so Hawaii has some of the lowest game fees other than football um, for them, despite having the highest cost of living index in the country. So it seems like uh, seems like they should definitely be paying people a little bit more, but, you know, I, I guess that's what they do. And Nevada sets game fees for officials and are equal across the board. Um, so they try to make it a little more fair for all their sports. Um, you get paid sixty nine twenty five for a baseball game and a basketball game and a football game and a soccer game and a softball game and a volleyball game, and everybody gets paid seventy nine twenty five. You know, ten dollars more for state tournament games across the board for all the states. Interesting way to do things. And Region Eight, our final region, is uh, basically the Pacific Northwest. So we have Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming. And there's some interesting fees here. So Alaska, $70 a game. That's solid. Idaho, 62 That's a bit low. Um, Montana, it's a non-sanctioned sport, so they don't report. Same thing with uh, Wyoming. Oregon, $67.75. And Washington, $62.25. So um, in Region 8, Alaska's postseason tournaments, other than football, consist of multiple games to reduce travel costs. And uh, Montana has set fees of $60 across all sports in the region. Um, so, interesting there as well, I guess. If you, um, well, they don't sanction baseball, but if you work basketball, football, soccer, softball, volleyball in um, Montana, you're going to get $60 a game. That's just what it is, I guess. So um, you kind of know where your fees are for the area you live in, and you can kind of make some comparisons there. I think that's pretty interesting. I'm sure some of you are feeling good about how much you're making. Some of you are like, man, we're getting kind of ripped off. And then others, like here in the state of Michigan, we're somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it'd be nice to make a little bit more, but we're doing better than some other places. The cost of living certainly should matter. That's why Hawaii should get paid more. But, you know, if you're living in uh, New York City area and traveling and cost of living in general, they should probably pay you more. And, and that might be the case, let's say, in parts of California as well. If you're living in the middle of um, uh, Idaho, maybe it's not such a big deal. I mean, some of them might have to, some officials might have to drive farther, but still. Um, so interesting, interesting stuff, I thought, and uh, something to keep an eye on and and talk about with your associations and uh, groups that you work for. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week's umpire spotlight is the longtime National League umpire Ernie Quigley. So, you know, before the age of television, umpires worked, um, you know, kind of a, a, as an anonymous group. 
only a handful of the, the big personalities gained widespread recognition. Um, and among the virtually unknown umpires um, in the early days was uh, Ernest Cosmos Quigley. He was an outstanding and influential umpire who was maybe the greatest sports official in history. Um, indicative of how overlooked he has been, in, in, in fact, uh, is a, a fairly comprehensive list of uh, Canadian-born Major League players, coaches, and managers, and umpires that you might look at, um, which include people like Jim McKinnon and Paul Runge. They usually will omit Quigley, all right? But for 31 years, 1913 to 1944, Quig, as he was called, served the National League with uh, high distinction on, on the field. He was a supervisor of umpires. He was a public relations director. And for 26 of those years, he not only umpired Major League Baseball, but he also gained national prominence officiating major college football and basketball, uh, in all, some 250 games a year. Because, you know, it was then possible to combine a Major League umpiring um, schedule with officiating other sports because college schedules were more seasonal and limited in number. You know, typically, you know, you get like eight football games and 18 basketball games back in the 1920s. So in over 40 years of officiating, Quigley estimated working some 5,400 baseball games, 1,500 basketball games, 400 football games, and logging 100,000 miles a year in coast-to-coast travel. Pretty amazing. Um, when you know baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mount Landis wondered how his wife liked her husband being gone 325 nights a year, Quigley replied, Mrs. Quigley likes it fine. We're constantly getting reacquainted. <laughs> Most of our wives uh, or girlfriends or significant others would, uh, would agree with that. Anyway, so Quigley was born in 1880 in Newcastle, New Brunswick, Canada. And uh, his, his parents were Irish immigrants. And um, his father was a salesman and sought you know, greater opportunities by moving the family to Concordia, Kansas in the 1880s. And that's maybe why he gets left off the Canadian thing because, you know, um, when he was a little kid, he moved to America. So Quigley was an all-around athlete at the University of Kansas, um, but baseball was his favorite sport. Turned pro in 1905 as a shortstop with Topeka and the newly formed Class C Western Association, which became a pretty big league back in that time. His uh, professional career, which included occasional stints as a manager, uh, took an abrupt turn in 1910 when, uh, sidelined by a broken hand, he agreed to replace an umpire who had quit the Class C Wisconsin-Illinois League and quickly was unnatural. Three years later, he reached the major leagues. That's just such a typical story you see, you know, somebody making a replacement for somebody and and getting the bug, and then it goes in that direction. So a National League umpire for 26 years, he umpired in 3,351 games, the seventh most in Major League history at the time. And we know some people have gone past that now. His career highlight was umpiring 38 games in six World Series, including the infamous 1919 Black Sox series between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds, in which he worked home plate in games three and seven. Um, Shocked to learn that eight White Sox players had thrown the series, Quigley said he never saw a team try harder to win and that they were beaten on the square by the superior strength of the Reds. Some people would disagree with him, though. He was also behind the plate on uh, June 1st, 1923, when the New York Giants beat uh, the Philadelphia uh, Phillies 22-8, setting a modern league record by scoring in all nine innings. And as we know as umpires, that's not the kind of game we want, because those are long games, right, when they're scoring a lot of runs. He achieved another distinction when he and Charlie Riggler in 1920 became the first National League umpires ever to hold out for more money before eventually signing their contracts. Because, you know, we all know that umpires are always fighting to get paid more, right? Still doing it now. 
So Quigley experienced the physical dangers of umpiring home plate. Um, on July 11th, 1923, he was hospitalized for several days after being knocked unconscious by a foul ball at the left temple in the first game of a doubleheader. Um, Cy Fifman had to work the second game alone, making Quigley indirectly responsible for the last major league game officiated by a single umpire because, you know, they were only working two umpires at that point. Um, in 1934, another foul ball hit him on the jaw, temporarily unable to speak. He had to communicate for days with pencil and paper. I mean, we're talking about some concussion stuff here with Quigley, right? And in August 1934, he was overcome with heat exhaustion after the first game of a doubleheader in Philadelphia. Like many of us, uh, sometimes Quigley just had a bad day. Fortunately for him, one such occurrence was when he was umpiring behind the plate in the 1935 World Series, which was the first World Series my favorite team, the Detroit Tigers, ever won against the Cubs. Anyway, in the fourth inning, while racing toward the Detroit dugout to track a foul pop-up, he slipped in a puddle and was like to bust his neck falling into the Tigers' dugout. That's what he said anyway. Another unfortunate occurrence came after a game at Wrigley Field in 1933 when Quigley suddenly collapsed unconscious in the umpire's dressing room. Taken to a hospital, he had not suffered a stroke as feared, but instead had been severely shocked after backing into an exposed electrical wire while exiting the shower. That's a great umpire room there. <laughs> Contrary to doctor's orders, he returned the diamond the next day. That's what all good umpires would do, right? Like all umpires, Quigley's decisions on the baseball field occasionally uh, prompted some arguments from players and managers and boos and even, you know, things being thrown from the fans. But in general, he reportedly had good relations with players and managers owing to his, you know, diplomatic posture, his decisiveness and upholding decisions, and his total command of the rule book, which is always very important. Casey Stingle thought him a splendid man who knew all the rules and there's nothing that you know you don't want to be like a bookworm kind of guy out there but you you got to know what you're talking about know your rules that's very important he repeatedly demonstrated knowledge of the most intricate applications of, of both playing and scoring rules and he adamantly refused to tolerate verbal abuse so instead of debating decisions quickly turned challenges away by sternly asking now, just what was it you said? Continuing the discussion resulted in an ejection from the game. <laughs> All right. He lost control once early in his career, 1915 in July, when he punched Johnny Evers, claiming that the Boston second baseman had stepped on his foot during an argument. Um, umpire and player uh, were both fined $100. That probably gets you a more significant uh, punishment nowadays, right? But, you know, baseball people punched each other back in that time. Quigley enjoyed a universal respect for his demeanor as well as his umpiring ability. At a time when players and managers like, you know, John McGraw were openly combative and um, very profane in what they said, some umpires retaliated in kind with, you know, um, vulgarities and, you know, insults and such. But not Quigley, who had taught uh, history, English, mathematics, and physical education at St. Mary's College in Kansas. Um, Fred Lieb, the most prominent baseball writer of the day, who covered baseball for three New York City newspapers from 1909 to 1934, he recalled that Quigley was strictly high class and spoke with the diction and proficiency of a college professor. Uh, when somebody like John McGraw once shouted, Don't put on any airs with me! Um, Quig, I guess, replied, one doesn't put on airs by speaking good English. <laughs> so that's awesome. So as somebody that's a teacher myself, I think that's pretty pretty cool. <laughs> anyway, to a player's uh, uncomplimentary comment, he once responded, sarcasm, sir, is the weapon of the weak-minded. <laughs> so they probably just walk away like, what? What is that supposed to mean? So he enjoyed the respect of adversaries. Uh, he regarded Boston's uh, Tony Bacco, whom he had numerous run-ins, as the uh, most pestiferous player in uniform. But when a serious illness sent Quigley to the hospital, 
Baco sent flowers. I mean, you know, so they, they respected him for that kind of stuff. Um, Quigley's contributions to umpiring uh, extended abroad after the 1928 season. Um, the second most senior National League umpire to Bill Clem, he was. He spent three months on an instructional mission to Japan with three recently retired ball players. That would include Ty Cobb um, as well. Uh, they were treated like royalty. He traveled throughout the country, umpiring ball games, lecturing, conducting clinics, and even establishing schools for baseball umpires and basketball referees. When Quigley retired at the end of the 1936 season, uh, National League President Ford Frick appointed him the league's first supervisor of umpires. Um, so, you know, the administrative appointment theoretically ended Quigley's on-field duties, but he did return to the Diamond as a replacement umpire for several games in April and May 1937, and again in July and September 1938. So, his duties as umpire-in-chief were to supervise current umpire staff, review complaints over their decisions and performances, um, give fines and things like that if that was needed, interpret rules uh, for Mr. Frick and the teams. But um, anyway, in, in this capacity, Quigley's legendary knowledge of the rules was put to good use. Um, asked by Frick to facilitate the creation of a uniform code for both the major and minor leaguers, uh, he called senior circuit umpires to a three-day meeting, senior circuit being National League, right, to review every word of every rule, posing questions about the formal rules as well as unusual situations and vague applications. Um, the undisputed authority on baseball rules, he routinely received inquiries about um, interpretations from across the country and from as far away as Australia and Japan. So he's one of those kind of guys that you definitely wanted to know, and he was the go-to rules guy. In December 1940, uh, Ford Frick designated Quigley the league's first full-time director of public relations, a position he held until July 1944. So the reassignment was both political and practical. The National League's Bill Clem, the most famous and respected Major League umpire, um, had retired in November 1940. And then when Tommy Conley, Clem's famous counterpart in the American League, retired in 1931. He became Major League Baseball's first umpire supervisor. So the National League followed suit by appointing Clem, the king of umpires, um, to the like position in the National League, right? So because uh, Quigley had served concurrently as the voice of the league and umpire supervisors, the expansion of his public relations function was apt. Uh, and in recognition of his skills and identifying new talent, he continued to be in charge of scouting for new umpires, which is obviously very important still to this day, right? Always an ambassador for the sport, uh, Quigley taught from 1938 to 1940, a summer school course at Columbia University to um, facilitate instruction on baseball rules in his course on techniques and mechanics of umpiring, he invented magnetic baseball, a mag magnetized blackboard featuring the outline of a baseball diamond. So by using a series of colored magnetized rings to represent players and umpires, he was able to quickly and clearly diagram positioning on various plays. So in the early 40s, uh, Quigley joined with uh, fellow National League umpire Charlie Morin, um, a former football player and coach, to publish educational pamphlets on all phases of football, basketball, and baseball. Anyway, no less significant was his public persona. The highly visible, personable, and outgoing Ernie Quigley did much to put a human face on umpires, thereby countering the conventional negative attitudes toward baseball men in blue um, for you know years and years. It was commonplace for baseball players to endorse a variety of commercial products, but Quigley was the first sports official known to do so, pictured and identified as the umpire supervisor in a newspaper advertisement. And they said, we solved the timing problem of baseball when we adopted Lungi's watches for the use of all umpires. So he got a watch endorsement. Pretty good gig, I guess. So sensitive to verbal abuse from fans and and press coverage that uh, called attention to controversies, uh, umpires typically were 
not so, you know, not so visible off the field. Quigley, however, relished the spotlight. He eagerly made a well-publicized appearance on a radio sports interview program in New York, explaining how umpires dealt with difficult and unexpected situations. He uh, regularly joined civic leaders at a variety of you know celebrations in the community, uh, ranging from you know the Brooklyn Dodgers Not Hole Club uh, party to um, the Joint Sportsmanship Brotherhood New York City Baseball Federation dinners. Connie Mack, the you know the old manager for Philadelphia Athletics, had such things, and and he came to those as well. And he, and also he occasionally returned to the field as a celebrity umpire. Uh, you know, like for the Army-Navy Day game and at West Point and benefit games between teams, you know, from New York military schools. Um, but perhaps his most effective outreach thing was the um, three times a week evening radio program he hosted on um, a station in Topeka, Kansas for 17 years from, you know, the late 1920s when radio really got going to the mid-40s talking about sports in general, but mostly baseball answering questions from listeners. So kind of the first, you know, like a a sports talk show host, if you want to think of it that way. So even though he was overshadowed by a lot of his contemporary National League umpires, um, Quigley's on-field reputation, you know, administrative contributions following his retirement, um, it led to a, a long, distinguished, and influential career as a Major League umpire for him. In 1960, looking back over a half century of covering baseball, Fred Lieb, um, in his weekly column for the Sporting News, declared, It's doubtful that any man ever had the rules of baseball, football, and basketball at his fingertips, as did Quigley. Unless it was Bill Clem, no National League umpire of his day commanded as much respect as did Quigley. So, you know, great, uh, great thing to be said about you. So the baseball diamond provided Quigley with his greatest officiating success, but football and basketball brought even more widespread recognition. For 40 years, 1904 to 1943, Quigley worked college football games for most of his career serving as the referee, you know, the white hat, right? He missed two seasons in 1928 because of a baseball trip to Japan and 1938 due to a severe ankle injury um, that was in, you know, September that kept him out. He thought refereeing football was easier than umpiring baseball in one fundamental respect. He said football players usually vent their enthusiasm on their adversaries instead of taking it out on the officials. And Quigley was in demand for big games across the country, including three Rose Bowls. And as with baseball, he commanded his command of football rules was unrivaled. After retiring from the gridiron, he served as the ranking member of the NCAA Football Rules Committee from 1946 to 1954. Quigley refereed college basketball from 1906 to 1942, rising to the top of basketball officiadom in the United States. In addition to a full slate of regional college games every year, he was selected to work premier national contests and officiated more national tournaments than any other referee of his time. He was um, the second referee to be enshrined in the National Basketball Hall of Fame. And departing from the customary, you know, demeanor of sports officials, quickly became the first flamboyant, colorful official, famous for exaggerated verbal and physical gestures, as well as an unorthodox behavior, you know, when he officiated. So to Quigley, the whistle was merely a device to announce a referee's presence. His trademark call became world-renowned. Upon detecting a violation, quickly pointed an accusatory figure, a finger, sorry, at the offending player and in a, you know, a loud voice shouted, you can't do that. That's how he would do it. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. A call invariably echoed by, you know, spectators, right? So his trademark call was so well-known that in 1945, he received uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, a letter from uh, European from Europe, addressed only as "You can't do that, USA." <laughs> All right. Anyway, his officiating career finally over. Quickly returned in 1944 to his alma mater, the University of Kansas, as the athletic director, and he promptly retired uh, the department's debt 
and uh, launched a major resurgence in its athletic program by reinstituting five sports canceled during World War II and hiring superb coaches who elevated football, basketball, and track to championship levels. And then after he retired in 1950, the school's first baseball field, built in 1958, was named Quigley Field in his honor, the first and only ballpark named after an umpire. So Ernest Quigley underwent extensive cancer surgery in in September 1958, and he finally uh, succumbed to the disease in December 1960 at age 81. He is uh, buried at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Lawrence, Kansas, and perhaps the best epitaph for uh, the unique one-of-a-kind official came from his alma mater student newspaper. They said, the most famous man in the field of sports. So that is our umpire spotlight, Ernie Quigley. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. I I certainly appreciate all of you guys out there that uh, tune in each week and download the podcast on your your phone or iPad or listen to it streaming online or whatever you might do. Um, it it doesn't uh, doesn't take much to get me going to to make me want to do another podcast, um, especially in this tough time that we're we're living through. I've, you know, just getting a couple emails like I've gotten lately and uh, some feedback from some people. If they like it, it makes me think, hey, some people out there are, are you know, listening and, and they um, get something out of this. So I'm going to make sure I continue to do it. And, um, you know, I've always got ideas on things I can do, as you see. And I'll, I'll put some stuff out. I just hope sometime soon, sometime at least in the next few weeks here, that I can get on the baseball field and be talking about that and uh, some things that are happening, good and bad, um, in the officiating world for this season. Hope there is some kind of season. Until then, though, this is what we got. This is what I've got. And I'll keep calling strikes.